Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Jody Bolson-Raybould is an independent member of parliament for Vancouver Granville. She's the former attorney general and minister of justice for Canada. And, um daughter of a First Nations hereditary chief, lawyer, and I said to her off the, phone, off the air just a few minutes ago, I said, uh, I try not to be a fan of politicians. It's not something that works well for me, but I am a fan of Miss Wilson-Raybould because she has earned the respect of people in this country by standing up for what matters and standing up to a prime minister and a prime minister's office, and uh, we know as much as I think we're going to be able to find out. Uh, about the SNC-Lavalin case, which isn't going to stop me from asking questions. Uh, Jody, thank you very much for coming on the program. And thank you for, for having me. I appreciate being here. Let me start with very difficult issues that this country is facing. And uh, today, uh, the issue is one of race and intolerance in light of the uh, horror rampage against the Afsal family in uh, London, Ontario. The funeral is today. And then... Quebec is moving forward with its Bill 21, of course, which has been described as a direct government endorsement of intolerance. Where, what do we need to do? Where are we? What's, what's the issue of tolerance, race, religion? Where are we in this country right now? Well, I, I mean, I join um, so many people, everyone across the country, in, in uh, recognizing and remembering and honoring the lives of that beautiful family that was murdered. Um, I mean, we have to, um, when talking about Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, um, relationships with respect to Indigenous peoples in this country, um, I'm hearing and seeing Canadians speaking out necessarily. We have to call out racism. We have to call out intolerance. And we have to keep these issues um, top of mind on our agenda. And um, simply because we're heading into um, soon uh, a federal election and political parties are wanting to gain as many votes as possible, that is not a reason to run roughshod over the foundations and the values in this country, that being an appreciation of diversity and an actual real understanding that um, as Canadians, um, you know, the fundamental values that we hold are ones of equality and inclusion and embracing diversity, which makes us stronger. Those are the values that I was raised with, and those are the values that I stand up for as a proud independent member of parliament. Yeah. Uh, we've seen thousands and thousands of Canadians gather in uh, individuals and expressions of sorrow and solidarity for the Afsal family and great concern for 
for for where we for, for the issues that we have to deal with. But there's also seems to me a public determination to do exactly that. The question is, what will official Canada do? So I'll ask you this: Do you have faith in an inquiry into the discovery of the remains of 215 children in Kamloops at the residential school? Because you've called on Mr. Trudeau to uphold his commitment for transformative change in relations with Indigenous people. Do you have confidence that this is going to be done uh, properly with with forethought and then proper follow-up and commitment to the whole issue? Well, I mean, I will say that, um, I mean, we have seen report after report, um, you know, dating back to 1996 with respect to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which expressed um, the must-needed um, solutions um, facing Indigenous issues in this country through to having the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, um, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, calls to action. And while I will say there has been some movement made, um, this government, this Prime Minister, has not followed through on his promises, and we need to hold him to account. So do I have trust um, or faith that something's going to move as a result? I hope so, but um, I think that um, for me, and I know many Indigenous leaders and Canadians across the country, that, that hope and that trust in this government and in this Prime Minister to do the right thing, to stop taking half measures or or just speaking in terms of promises um, and turning that those promises into action it has waned <laughs> and um, I mean I've said before this prime minister still has time to do the right thing to do the right thing by those 215 children and and residential school survivors um, across the country to do the right thing in terms of transformative change um, he gave a speech, you probably heard it, on February the 14th, 2018, where he promised to move from denying Indigenous people's rights to actually um, implementing and recognizing those rights. Uh, and he has not moved on that transformative promise. And we need to, we need to hold him to account. Mm-hmm. Um, your upcoming book is titled Indian in the Cabinet, uh, with the word Indian in quotation marks. I don't want to read anything into it, but uh, I have to ask you, I mean, I want to ask you, should I read into this that, uh, even though I said I wasn't going to, uh, that <laughs> as, as Federal Minister of Justice and Attorney General, were you treated differently or somehow, well, differently then, let's use that, um, as the non, um, I don't know how to phrase this, as, let's, let's put it this way, were you treated differently because you were First Nation Cabinet Minister? Well, I think that, I mean, that's a lot of what I go into talking about in my book that's going to be released in in October. Um, I I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, my experience um, as um, the first Indigenous Minister of Justice and Attorney General, um, uh, it had a definite pros and it had its cons. Um, On the con side, I realized that no matter what table one sits around, there is a degree of marginalization based on um, racialized and gendered terms. I experienced this. Um, You know, I was incredibly proud um, to serve over three years 
as the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, and we were able to accomplish some significant things. Um, and I was of the view that I was placed in that role. Certainly, I have background and experience, but I came to that role with a different world view, um, being a proud Indigenous person in Canada. And, um, you know, the status quo was something or is something that is very entrenched and different world views or different ways of looking at things um, based on consensus-based decision-making, based on not having um, partisan considerations, but actually having meaningful discussions around issues and bringing forward um, you know, different solutions was not something that was fully embraced. And, and that was a realization that I um, certainly had and still have um, and recognized that the word Indian um, used in the title of my upcoming book is, is um, um, something that I experienced in being treated like an Indian versus a proud Indigenous person. I look forward to your book, um, Jordy. Let me go back, if uh, if I may, for just. Well, I want to talk to you about the uh, about the um, residential schools and the tragedy at Kamloops. And it's not just Kamloops. We're we're going to, I'm sure, be hearing more now because people in this country are demanding answers. Also, want uh, position and answers from the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope has not apologized. I'll be speaking with an expert on uh, theology and the church later on this hour who believes that the hierarchy in the church is doing whatever it can to deflect from uh, what the responsibilities are. How do you assess the non-response from the church? Well, I mean, I think it's important um, to to recognize and acknowledge that there are many Indigenous leaders and people, residential school survivors, that as in the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action to have a papal apology I believe that's important. Also, disclosing all of the documents um, that they um, may continue to hold to survivors is important. Um, And I think that people will continue to pursue that. And even the government of Canada, the Prime Minister, has pursued that. But I will say, um, in listening to the Prime Minister calling on the Pope to apologize, while important, um, that apology The federal government, and this is my concern, cannot continue to offload their responsibility to do what's right with respect to Indigenous peoples. And I I mean, I appreciate the federal government speaking about supporting um, the Tsukamloops and other communities because there will be more mass graves reported um, to, to do the necessary investigations and have those investigations and memorialization led by communities. But Beyond that, the foundations of solutions in shifting this relationship um, are dependent upon the federal government getting their own house in order, changing their colonial racist laws, policies and practices. This is what the prime minister promised to do. This is what the prime minister has not done. And um, on both planks of, of what I just said, that's where Canadians need to hold this government to account. Yeah. Uh, the nation followed each moment uh, during the parliamentary hearings on how you were treated by the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office as Federal Minister of Justice and Attorney General when you refused to interfere with the federal prosecutors and pushed them to agree to pursue a deferred prosecution agreement with the uh, SNC-Lavalin, which Mr. Trudeau and the PMO demanded of you. This is what we 
how much we know. The conflict of interest in Parliamentary Ethics Commission was very blunt in his assessment of what you faced. Mario Dion wrote, mm-hmm. in part, the authority of the Prime Minister and his office was used to circumvent, undermine, and ultimately attempt to discredit the decision um, of the Director of Public Prosecutions as well as the authority of Ms. Wilson-Raybould as the Crown's Chief Law Officer. What can you tell us that uh, about what she's... What, I know this this limited amount that you can share with us, but what can you tell us? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do uh, not continue to plug this book, but I do go into it and, and um, a little bit um, in terms of SNC and my upcoming book. But what can I tell you? I, I mean, I was... Um, and I've reflected on this so much, catapulted into the national spotlight um, and did my very public walk from the front of the government benches to the back corner of the House of Commons. And, and I have to say, Roy, I would, I would not change anything that I did. I was very confident and understood my role as the Attorney General and my role being to not have political people the prime minister or otherwise, interfere in a prosecution um, and standing up for the rule of law, which is which is what I did and I would, would do again. Um, I, I think it's a, a something that we as Canadians need to consider how there can be potential wrongdoing. And Mario Dion, as you said, did come out with very forthright with his findings. Um, but how... Um, politics, how the institutions of government work in this country, wherein you have a small group of people, the executive, the cabinet, running the country. And sometimes um, in those closed-door discussions um, where decisions are made, sometimes the, and this is where I can't get into a lot of detail, but the reality of cabinet confidentiality is used as a shield to hide activity that is taking place. Um, This was, um, uh, potentially is the case with respect to SNC, but um, it just makes me think about how many number of examples over the years um, where, you know, similar realities uh, and decisions and actions have been taken behind closed doors out of sight and out of the um, ability to be accountable to Canadians for those decisions. Yeah. Uh, we've spoken on this program with uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who also find himself on the uh, receiving end of some rather unflattering and uh, uh, questionable remarks by Mr. Trudeau, but I, I won't take you there. I've s- spoken with the Admiral about it uh, off-air, but um, yeah, yeah there's, there, there are... I, you use the word spite, and it's not the first time I've heard that word used in relation to a PM or a prime minister's office. It can be spiteful. It can be a very difficult circumstance. Uh, and I only have two and a half minutes, so I'm going to move on, as though, although I want to stay with this issue. But let's move on. You voted against supporting the uh, BQ motion to affirm Quebec's right to arbitrarily amend the Constitution. The opposition parties, they went along with the Bloc Quebecois. Um, why did you make the decision you made? Well, I, I mean, I read the, um, the wording of, of the block motion. It was speaking about um, unilaterally changing the, the Constitution, the wording about Quebec and provinces. There was a lot of concerning um, words within that motion. And I spoke out and said nay to what's called a unanimous consent motion. because, And I thought that other people were going to say nay as well. Um, to my surprise, nobody did. Um, so I, I unilaterally stopped that. But 
I mean, issues around amending the Constitution should not be dealt with by way of unanimous consent motions. They should be debated. They should be understood in terms of the impacts that, that um, you know, changing the Constitution has, and they should be in compliance with our amending formulas. Um, so I think there's a time and a place and an important conversation to have around the Constitution, but it's certainly not by way of a consent motion. And, and I, you know, I believe fundamentally that there are things that are bigger than politics, that are bigger than making sure that we secure votes in Quebec. And the rule of law and the Constitution is one of those things. So I would, I would do the same again in that case as I did um, the other day. Well, I'm glad you did that because I was looking at the other parties and thinking about what they were doing. I thought, you know, don't you get it? Um, even in a, in a selfish way, I mean, they, they should be protecting the constitution of the country, and they and they weren't doing that. And it's not up to the prime minister to say, well, Quebec and French is a minority situation in North America, so go ahead and amend the constitution. That's not the way it works. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah, there's 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 some decisions that as elected leaders and in particular leaders of parties or the prime minister i mean there's some decisions that you might have to make that will upset people um but that's what leadership is all about i mean we want to elect leaders that will make the right decisions and that will will explain why they made them and we want to be able to trust that they'll do that this episode is brought to you by shopify Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Walk us through what's going to happen as far as the Alberta legislature's role in approving a referendum on equalization is concerned. Uh, so this is a pretty straightforward, uh, Roy. As you know, the Premier has removed that particular motion uh, before the Legislative Assembly of Alberta. Um, it has not been voted on. Um, the next step will be, uh, will be for the members of the legislature uh, to be able to vote on that particular motion. Uh, I suspect that motion would pass with an overwhelming majority, if not a unanimous majority, at least from uh, our own caucus. Once that is approved, it will then uh, uh, proceed with, but with the lieutenant governor in council by ordering that that particular referendum question respect to Section 36, sub 2 of the Constitution of this particular country be put to a vote in the upcoming municipal elections on October the 18th. So, uh, Minister, what makes this uh, necessary? Because there are people who say, well, a referendum doesn't really matter. It's not going to carry any weight. I disagree. I think a referendum matters. The results of a (laughs) province-wide referendum matters, and it sends a a very clear message to a federal government that is desperate to be reelected. But why why is it necessary? Absolutely, Roy. It matters. It, it, It is critically important that the people of Alberta be given an opportunity to vote on this particular issue. That was a, a signature uh, election issue in 2019. It was a commitment made by now Premier, then leader of our party. It was in our platform commitment upon which we, the Albertans, 
gave us a, an overwhelming majority in the legislature. The people of Alberta uh, are not pleased with the state of our confederation. They are not pleased with the way and manner with which they have been treated, especially with respect to our resource sector. And it, it, there's no question that we send $20 billion more net to the federal government than we receive back. The bulk of those, those funds, yes, are taxes, but comes from the, the strong economy we have right here in Alberta. And our strong economy is fueled by our natural resources. We've seen in the last five years an attack by the federal government and the previous NDP government on the source of the wealth that we have here. So the question for Albertans is if we would not have an opportunity to develop our natural resources, why should we, you know, keep, why should we keep our mouths shut when it comes to the question of equalization? And a, a, buying a vote, an overwhelming vote, whilst it does not force the federal government to delete Section 36 sub 2, it would, you know, create a, a, a forum for a constitutional negotiation, Roy. Yeah, uh, Minister, if you just look at what's happened recently as far as Ottawa is concerned and uh, during the years of Mr. Trudeau's administration, and, and you look at Alberta, you look at the energy sector, and uh, Keystone XL immediately comes to mind. The Northern Gateway pi Pipeline immediately comes to mind. Uh, energy East immediately comes to mind. And then Correct. there are those two pillars of fine, uh, uh, of fine legislation. I say that tongue firmly planted. C forty eight, C forty eight, and six sixty nine. Yeah, C forty eight and C sixty nine. And at the same time, while Alberta is, you know, while, while you're contributing far more to equalization than the province ever gets back, Quebec received an increase of over a billion dollars in transfer payments at the same time. Correct. So no. Right. No, Andrew, you are absolutely correct. Uh, it, it, this is not fair to, to Alberta. At a time when we have suffered uh, the worst economic adversity, we are still uh, able to remit billions of dollars net to the federal government without any cooperation whatsoever. You have just outlined many of the uh, of the energy pipelines that have been cancelled under this government. You've, you've talked about C48, C69, two devastating pieces of legislation to one province and one province alone, Alberta. And the idea that, you know, some academics uh, would, would sit in their offices to argue that these have no uh, legal consequences, while that may be true that it, it would not automatically delete the, that subsection, but... I would argue that the, the nation and the federal government um, would be uh, well advised uh, to sit down with us should that uh, pass overwhelmingly. I will, I will remind your viewers, uh, Roy, that in 1998, the federal government, I mean, the, the Supreme Court ruled on the Quebec secession reference. And I want to quote you what the Supreme Court said in that particular decision. Quote, the continued existence and operation of the Canadian constitutional order could not be indifferent to a clear expression of a clear majority of Quebecers 
that they no longer wish to remain in Canada. The other provinces and the federal government would have no basis to deny the right of the government of Quebec to pursue cessation should a clear majority of the people of Quebec choose that goal, so long as, in doing so, Quebec respects the rights of others. So, so this is the Supreme Court. Yeah. And yeah. we would force uh, the federal government to negotiate this particular principle. And my hope is that the federal government will not dare ignore a near unanimous vote on this particular issue by the people of Alberta. Yeah. And we had the situation in 1995 where the then Prime Minister Jean Chrétien said, even though he did not have the authority to say, that 50% plus one vote would make the, be the deciding factor in the 1995 Quebec legisl- referendum on, on sovereignty. The Prime Minister doesn't have the right to do that. Now, uh, also, Minister Ottawa extended the equalization agreement arbitrarily without the uh, concurrence of anyone by five years. Correct. You know, and, and that is so true, you know, in, in, with respect to the formula. So the, the formula is something that the federal government of the day uh, would have to uh, determine, uh, decide. Yeah. And the federal government, uh, uh, of this particular federal government, decided uh, to uh, put in place a new formula that, that have given so much money to other provinces at the expense of Alberta. Uh, and so that is not fair to the people of Alberta. And as Alberta's Attorney General, we will do everything within our power, you know, to defend our uh, uh, promises, vital economic interest. And what we are hearing from Albertans, if you recall, Roy, the Fair Deal panel also recommended that this particular referendum proceed because Albertans were overwhelmingly speaking in favor of their government pursuing this particular referendum. Bank of Canada and uh, its commentaries can be confusing to people like me. Um, because numbers are not my forte. So the Bank of Canada announced its interest rates projections and released its updated monetary policy report. And as provinces reopen, how quickly or how slowly, the question is, how will stability return to the national and provincial economies? I don't really know what I just said, so I'm going to turn it over to our good friend, Professor Eric Cam, Professor of macroeconomics at Ryerson University. Professor, what is the Bank of Canada saying when they talk about the interest rate and the updated monetary policy report? What are they telling us? You know, Roy, I think what they're doing is is giving Canadians um, a perspective, which is for about the last 18 months, let's be honest, our economy has been on something of life support. And it continues to be on life support, and the bank is not quiet about it. They're holding their current policy rate for the time being at 0.25%. That's a historical low. Every interest rate in the economy grows off of the 0.25%. It's it's called the anchor rate. Um, And so that's half of the life support system. And the other half of the life support system is that they call it quantitative easing, which is just a big title that means we print a lot of money. And that's continued at a targeting pace of about $3 billion a week. So when you put interest rates and quantitative easing together, the reality is 
there's no answer to your question without uncertainty because what are they going to do when they pull off the life support but before we answer that question let's just take a quick look how we're doing on life support and there's good news and there's bad news uh in bad news the labor market is still a little bit uh troublesome unemployment rate unchanged uh but the the big problem is in two sectors the first is that there is a large drop in part-time work and among part-time workers a great number of those people would prefer full-time employment and what that does of course is it underestimates problems in the labor market and creates what's called discouraged job searchers which right now in their latest numbers they say there's almost 50,000 people who've either given up job hunting completely or have given up looking to go from part-time to full-time so i think the labor market um still has a long way to go but if you want the good news the first quarter gdp came in at about 5% and that beat expectations so confidence and and demand is quite resilient and household spending as we know was really stronger than expected so what do we make then and you and i talked about uh, this issue several times during the height of the pandemic and that is what happens to large sectors of the business world and at the time, we were talking about the hotel industry, and we had the president of the association saying there was a possibility 50% of the uh, of the uh, properties would just disappear because there would be no money left to, to operate them. So now we have the Tourism Industry Association of Canada, and we're going to be speaking with the president, CEO of the association tomorrow, Professor, about their situation. They want the border open very quickly because they say without that, their industry is in serious danger. Um, how many how many sectors of our business world, your business economy, are in danger? Well, the answer really is all, except for the very um, obvious ones that are uh, like healthcare and education. I mean, anybody that is pro-cyclical with gross domestic products still has to be nervous. Uh, look no further than inflation. You often heard experts say throughout this that we're not going to have to worry about inflation in the economy. Well. Uh, hold the phone because uh, the central bank likes to target inflation at between one and three percent and right now it's coming in at about 3.5 percent basically on the back that commodity prices have gone up gas prices have gone up and the canadian dollar has appreciated so my long-winded answer to your question is how do we get the economy off life support and the way that we have to do it um, to respect these companies, respect these corporations that really are still on the brink is you're going to have to lower the quantitative easing, but I think you're going to have to maintain that stand on interest rates. And as I've said before, I think the government has to bring in some sort of subsidies, um, whether it's a pure subsidy, a transfer or tax breaks to small business because you've got to give people a chance to come back. So really it's all about how do we get off life support. Okay, in the 30 seconds we have left, it really isn't also just up to the Bank of Canada what happens to our interest rates in this country. The Bank of Canada is influenced large to a large extent by what happens in the rest of the world, particularly south of the 49th, right? 
Oh, absolutely. And we tend to follow lockstep with what's going on in the United States. And again, don't look now, but United States inflation is high and United States interest rates are already starting to creep up. So you can see it, Roy, you can see the foreshadowing that's coming. I would just ask the powers that be to remember that if we're going to give businesses a level playing field, we've got to give them some breaks, whether they're direct through things like interest rates or indirect through things like transfers. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.